A warning, this podcast deals with mental health issues including suicide, depression and anxiety. It's been nearly 20 years since John Kerwin wrote Hope in the Sand at Bethel's Beach. The biggest fear for me was that I was never going to be well again. I was never going to be the John Kerwin that went into this. I mean, I had everything in my life. It was an ad for the Ministry of Health targeted at men suffering depression. Sir John and people like Mike King have been largely credited for raising awareness of mental health in this country. Now we have a whole week of it and we're more open about the subject than ever before. This Mental Health Awareness Week, reconnect with the people and places that lift you up. Hey, picking a way order. Head to mhaw.nz to find out more. But with Mental Health Awareness Week over for another year, some people are starting to ask, is all this conversation helping or harming? Awareness creates demand, and we have a mental health system that is creaking. Hi, I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, is there a risk that we're medicalising what really are normal experiences? And should we be pulling back on or re-angling the message? I think our mental health conversation has become quite stale. Jahan Casanada is a journalist, author and mental health speaker. He thinks we're at a crossroads with this issue and the messaging has to change. Mental Health Awareness Week was created back in 1993 at a point when we weren't having this conversation at all. Mental health was still a taboo in many of our communities. Most people had probably grown up in that take a concrete pill and harden up culture. And so it's taken many, many years for us to chip away at that. You know, I'm part of the first generation in Aotearoa to grow up with all of this messaging around mental health. How old are you? I'm 33, the ripe old age of 33, but I remember when I was at high school, Sir John Kerwin wrote the word hope in the sand in that famous ad campaign that was actually funded by the government and supported by Jim Anderton, who had lost a child to suicide. So this was a cause that was very close to his heart. And it was really in the mid-2000s that this broke into the public sphere and we started talking about this openly. So fast forward another couple of decades and there's a whole industry, a multi-billion dollar industry that sprung up around well-being. And certainly during the pandemic, many businesses and organisations threw a lot at mental health and well-being because they knew rightly that their people would struggle during that time. But I think now we're really at a crossroads and we need to ask ourselves, how do we shift from awareness towards action? And how do we make sure if we're talking about this stuff over and over again, that we're actually helping? So have we spent the last 15 years sort of breeding snowflakes? Absolutely not. I've experienced significant mental health issues. I experienced four years of depression while I was having some of the most successful years of my career as a reporter at TVNZ. I've been suicidal, I've contemplated ending my life, and I would push back very strongly against any suggestion that um, we've bred a generation of snowflakes. You know, when I was at high school, um, life was simpler in New Zealand. We all thought we would get a house in our mid-twenties for $300,000. We weren't talking about climate change. We weren't talking about mental health. And certainly the generation that's come after me is dealing with a huge bunch of challenges, including the advent of technology and cyberbullying and social media and all the rest of it. And I was asked a question by someone this week. Do you think that mental health is being used as an excuse? Do you think people are uh, being you know, able to get away with being lazy or playing the mental health card these days. 
I'm sure that there are people who try and do that, but I don't think that's representative of the vast majority. And are our suicide numbers still really shocking? Well, they are shocking, but they've actually flattened out. In the 2022 financial year, 538 Kiwis ended their lives. So those were suspected self-inflicted deaths. And actually what we know is that that number is 14.5% lower than the average rate over the last 13 years. Now, I think that fact will surprise many of your listeners. They probably haven't seen it on the front page of a newspaper because I don't think it's been on the front page of a newspaper. So, you know, I think the thing that surprised a lot of us during COVID was we thought, oh my goodness, the suicide rate's going to go through the roof, right, as a result of all of these Mm -hmm. challenges. That's not what we've seen in the numbers. So, look, um, one year's data point doesn't tell you the whole story, but I've been pretty heartened by the flattening out of those numbers over the last few years. I think it does show that at least some of what we're doing is working. And the stat that I'm really interested in that we will never know is how many lives have actually been saved by all of the work and all of the conversation that's been done in this space. Right. So, you know, it's not a complete self-fulfilling industry. It has had a purpose and and that purpose does seem to be... Of course, of course. I mean, this is chronic across the Western world, right? We know that people are struggling. And so, look, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to this. There are people who have clinical distress. There are people who have life challenges that may not meet the threshold of a mood disorder, for example, under the DSM, which is the International Handbook of Mood Disorders. And then also there's just the challenges that come up as a result of what's happening in your environment. So if we're looking to try and put everybody into one category, we're really going to fail at that. And I think what we need to do is help people to navigate their challenges by seeking help and and all of the stuff that we've done over the last few years. But also we need to hold people accountable. We need to make sure that they're responsible for their own mental health. This is something the Mental Health Foundation's been working on with its Five Ways, Five Days campaign. You might have been part of it if you went to an office yoga session last week or shared food with colleagues. They've used the Five Ways to Wellbeing for a long time. That's been the pillar of how they've, over the last few years, tried to communicate with people what are the things that they can do on a daily basis, you know, to improve their mental health. And look, going for a walk in nature or doing some mindfulness is not a panacea. These are tools that we can incorporate into our daily lives that can make a difference. But for many people, um, what they need is far greater support. They need talk therapy. They need the assistance of a counsellor or a psychologist to do some of that deeper work on themselves. And that might sound a little bit touchy-feely to some people, but to others, it's what will make all the difference. Karen Nimmo is one of those clinical psychologists who make all the difference. She's also on the receiving end of increased awareness of these issues. I think the whole awareness thing has been hugely helpful, um, particularly in the especially the hard to reach communities like the farming, the forestry, the construction. No coincidence that those are mainly male in terms of reducing stigma and making people feel more normal and not alone and able to reach out. And, and obviously it's built knowledge and all that sort of thing. But I think there is a flip side to all that awareness. Um, as a psychologist, the first thing you're asking when when mental health awareness week rolls around is okay so is this translating into action are people getting the help they need because obviously awareness creates demand and we have a mental health system that is creaking under that demand there are not enough psychiatrists psychologists the wait lists are 
long and getting longer. Clinical psychologists say they're having to turn away dozens of patients because there isn't capacity to treat them. Somebody told me that I was the 47th person that they'd tried trying to find somebody who had space. The mental health stats are worrying, so you've got a lot of demand created by this awareness and we have to do some good things with it, obviously. And the other thing about all the awareness, I think, is the rise and rise of the internet. In some ways, it's the wild west of mental health because you've got so many people on there making videos, talking about their lived experiences. How do you plan your day with ADHD? I'll show you. And because I'm weird, I like to eat my burritos with a fork because whenever I make burritos, I make them really messy and eating them with my hands, it just gets all over my hands and I don't like that. So I don't Play, and while that offers hope to many people and it can give you tips on how to manage your own struggles and that sort of thing, uh, that lived experience doesn't qualify you to diagnose or treat mental illness. It doesn't enable you to gauge safety and risk well. So there are some concerns around that sort of thing. There are a lot of people on the internet, I think, in the mental health field perhaps for the wrong reasons, so seeking fame and money and that sort of thing. So you have to be pretty careful to separate them out. And the other thing is there is a lot of self-diagnosis around now. You can jump on the internet, you can do your research, you can do some online tests. A mental illness test is a great tool for an individual to self-evaluate their own mental health. It usually consists of a series of questions designed to determine whether or not a person is suffering from a mental illness such as anxiety, depression or bipolar disorder. But what that does, the danger of that, is that it reduces mental health to a bunch of symptoms. Common symptoms include feelings of anxiety, sadness or worthlessness, difficulty concentrating or making decisions and suicidal ideation. As a psychologist, there's a whole lot more to diagnosing mental health issues or mental illness than a bunch of symptoms or lists things like a person's social factors, um, their culture, their relationships, their home life, their personal resilience, their strengths, and all that sort of thing, which is not factored in. I know there's been a massive increase in, in the number of TikTok videos and the like from like saying, I'm ADHD and you could be too. You know, Things like that becoming problematic. Agreed. We've got more and more people thinking they've got conditions that perhaps they haven't or they've just got one or two symptoms that fit the criteria. Um, and when you get that, you, that can actually lead to an increase in stigma because people believe they don't fit. Um, I've had clients get teased about the ADHD type presentations. Um, and we're getting also, as psychologists, we're getting more and more requests for specific assessments like because people believe they've got ADHD, they'll ask for those assessments or OCD those kind of things so when they could just be like personality traits personality traits or you know we're all on scales of things I think and you know we don't want to rush to slam labels onto ourselves when we don't necessarily need them or they may not be helpful you talked about resilience before do you think we have less of it now I think we've been, in New Zealand, we've been slammed. We've had the earthquakes, we've had COVID, we've had cyclones, floods, the cost of living. There's a lot of things out there that have really tested people. And it is hard to be resilient when we keep taking hits. I think, and I think obviously those people in the thick of it deserve support and compassion. But I would say that on the, on the, if you like, the great scale of resilience, there is such a thing as being too soft. And I think we have to be 
careful around that. I mean, life is hard. It's a different kind of hard for uh, different generations, but we must train ourselves to muscle up to stress and struggle and discomfort because those things are part of the world now and um, and always have been. And the ability to tolerate distress and manage our way through it is really important. Yeah, that's an interesting point because, I mean, we haven't been through two world wars, for example, this generation, the our generations, but in the wake of those wars, there was a lot of hidden mental health issues. You know, a lot of soldiers came back and never spoke about what they'd seen or ended up being violent or drinkers. You know, is there some kind of medium path we can tread here? I think so. I think you're right. Those things were just buried in those days and now it's all out there. We do have some specific challenges related to 2023. Obviously, social media is a big one and our daily exposure to all the things that are happening in the world, which really rocks and tests people. But yeah, I think we have to walk some middle ground. We don't... a hard thing for a psychologist to say but I wouldn't rush to say people are too soft but I would say sometimes we do need to be a little bit careful about separating off day-to-day struggles from clinical things and learn and train ourselves to muscle up to difficult events because those those things are going to just keep coming and uh, we have to be prepared to face them. So there's a difference between feeling down to feeling depressed to clinical depression? Yeah I think one of the difficulties is our mental health terminology, if you like, has become so normalised. We've got a label for everything and it has crept into our everyday language. Uh, for example, grief has become depression. Um, being nervous about exams or a big sports event is performance anxiety. Um, wanting to stay home more than a little bit is anything on a scale from introvert to social anxiety. If you break up with someone, you often might turn them a narcissist. Um, people will talk about my OCD or my ADHD or he's on the spectrum. Things like that are really commonplace now. You'll hear people everywhere saying they've been triggered. Words such as trigger, toxic, catastrophize and denial have become common parlance, boundaries and gaslighting and processing and narcissism and self-care and safe space and healing and then that language is kind of you know permeated into the culture and you know now people just kind of use psychobabble words by 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 default and and the funny thing about them to me is people think that that's how legitimate psychotherapists speak and it's actually not my husband went out the other night for a drink with somebody and he asked someone, this man a question and this is a man in his 60s and he said i can't answer that you're triggering me which I thought it was quite interesting that that has gone that far, that it has crept into our language that much. And, you know, that's fine and a little bit funny at times, but life and clinical issues, there's now a very blurry line between the two. And so we have to be careful, I think, to separate mental illness from ordinary human distress. You know, we all have mental health issues up to a point, but we're not all mentally unwell. And the confusion and the blurred lines has meant that there's a lot of tiptoeing being done around mental illness. Everybody's terrified of not doing the right thing or perhaps of more of doing the wrong thing. So we have to be careful about um, making sure that clinical issues are clinical and we don't just rush to label our ordinary distress with labels that that may not fit. Tiptoeing around is, is huge. You'll get 
bosses tiptoeing around their staff. You'll get parents tiptoeing around their adolescent kids because they're terrified that they might do something to make things worse or not sure how to handle it or whether it's, you know, how, how much of it is real and how much of it is something that they might have seen online, all kinds of things like that. And while we don't want to undermine real struggle, we have to acknowledge that and be supportive of that. We also have to be careful that we keep it real. Jahan Casanada has written an opinion piece for Stuff titled Is Our Suicide Conversation Helping or Harming? It's a strong reaction to recent reporting where a coroner allowed publication of harrowing details of a teenager's last months before she killed herself. This is a stark departure from the reporting of many years ago when any talk of suicide was kept out of the news. So I think there are two separate issues here. One is, is there a social taboo that's preventing us from talking about issues like suicide? And the second issue is... Are there reasons why we wouldn't talk about this because it might harm people? So in relation to the first question, we should be destigmatizing all mental health issues. We should be trying to make it possible for people to talk about what they're going through. And that will be an on- ongoing journey for New Zealand. But the second issue is far more complex. If we talk about suicide, if we draw attention to suicide, if we effectively put it on the table or we highlight it as an option that someone who is struggling might take as a way of trying to escape their pain, there's actually a lot of academic research over the last few decades that shows that can be incredibly dangerous. There's a phenomenon called suicide contagion. That When we hear about a cluster of suicides or a spate of suicides, especially among young people, especially in a small tight-knit community, that's often what we're talking about. So there's been this long-running tussle for many years between the academics, uh, many of whom think we shouldn't be covering this in the media, we shouldn't be highlighting it, And then those with lived experience, especially those who've lost someone to suicide, who say, we have to talk about this, we have to highlight this. And I think what we've seen in in recent years is the media um, pushing the boundaries more, using suicide stories to advocate for more mental health coverage. And that's meant we're now in a culture where we're talking about this all the time. And I have real concerns about the way that we're doing that. Kind of one of the ironies is that it was a coroner who said all those years ago, we should be moving away from this total ban on suicide. We need to talk about it. And now it's a coroner who's kind of incurred your displeasure in a way. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Well, back in 2006, which seems like uh, a very long time ago now, I reported on suicide for the first time and I interviewed that coroner, Warwick Holmes, who came out and said, look, the greatest number of my inquiries relate to suicide. The youngest victim that I've had to do an inquest for was nine years old. We need to be talking about this. Fast forward 17 years and I found myself really interested in this recent case of a student who took her life in a university hostel in Lincoln uh, down south. And the coroner in that case made a decision to make public some pretty detailed accounts of what she did in the lead-up to her death, how she planned her death, stuff that I just think is incredibly unhelpful and the research would suggest will put other people at risk. And, of course, the media latched onto this. There were many media organisations that picked up on this, but there was one story I saw in particular and the headline included the words, you know, how she meticulously planned her death. 
And I just found the whole thing incredibly repulsive, actually. I was baffled at why the coroner had released these details in the first place, least of all because of the impact that that would have on family and friends. But I was also deeply concerned about vulnerable people who might read those details and it might actually feed into their suicidal thinking. And I've been in that space myself and I know the significant impact that being exposed to that type of content can have on someone. When you were in that situation, did you use to read about other cases or did you used to think about how people would miss you when you're gone or absolutely you know. well I was a journalist at the time and I specialized in mental health reporting funnily enough and so I was interviewing and regularly exposed to the stories of other people who had been through this I hosted TVNZ's first ever mental health series I spoke to many people who'd been suicidal so that was challenging in and of itself but I was also really interested in how people found a way through. And that's the piece that, to me, is missing from this conversation in, in many contexts. You know, I meet many people who say, you know, the government's saying that we can't talk about suicide and we can't talk about how people do it and, and we need to be out there saying suicide, 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 this is a problem. And I think a lot of those people don't understand that banging on that drum isn't actually going to improve our mental health stats. How people find a way through mental distress is not by focusing on death, certainly not other people's deaths and and certainly not their own death either. People get through those times by focusing on hope and focusing on life. And that might not be a sexy angle for a media story, but if we truly want to be responsible and we want to improve those statistics, we need to be highlighting stories about how suicide can be prevented. We need to talk about the strategies and the tools and the ways forward that actually bring life to people. And that was what really upset me about that um, coroner's inquest, is that I read the report and there wasn't a single recommendation that she made about how that death can be prevented. And that goes against the Ministry of Health's and the Mental Health Foundation's media reporting guidelines. There's been a lot of conversation about that in the last few years. We should do better. And yet we knew so much about how she did it and how she was feeling and how she had it. And, And I wonder what we're trying to achieve with those stories, you know? And look, I'm still a journalist. I understand what people click on and what they're interested in. And I'm sure there's journalists listening to this who say, look, it's not our job to go out there and uh, wear a social responsibility badge. We are simply there to tell the facts. This is what happened and this is how it happened. And I get that. But this is a matter of life and death. This is not a real estate story that we're talking about. You know, we're talking about the fact that our work can have a significant impact on people. And so I do think we need to be more careful about how we tell these stories. And frankly, if we're honest... I think a lot of people click on these stories for the same reason that they click on true crime stories, which is that it's a form of grief porn, as we talk about it in the media. There is something voyeuristic about this. When we look at the misery that other families go through, I think it's our curiosity, it's our sense of intrigue, and also it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable in our own lives. So we really need to look at our own motivations if we're going to pay attention to these stories and think, why am I actually paying attention to this? The headline of your opinion piece was, is our suicide conversation helping or harming? Where do you fall now on that? Well, I think for many years it did help because it put suicide into the public arena. 
by talking about the people that we'd lost, by talking about the families that had been affected. We made politicians sit up and notice. We made businesses realise that many of their employees were struggling, and we actually brought this topic into the mainstream. But I think now we're at a point where many of those stories are not helping, in part because there are so many of them. You know, it just feels like we're saturated by stories about other people's distress and other people's challenges. I'm very supportive. In fact, I still tell many stories about other people who've been through mental distress. But my key point is we have to focus on how they got through. We've got to focus on what are the tools, what are the strategies, what are the support structures that they relied on to get into a better space. I don't think it's helpful if we fixate on suicide itself, the pain of it, the tragedy that it causes. I do think it's helpful if we use that to have a conversation about how we can prevent it and how we can make sure that people are well. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. Thanks to Jahan Kasanada and Karen Nimmo. Mā te wā.